0: I don't know what to make of this episode. This is just kind of a weird one. Um, in fact, point of note: when I was first prepping for this, I'm like "Manhunt," and I thought, "Is that the one where they've got the you know the, the escaped prisoner guy who's been genetically engineered and, and the, the, he's going to be oh my god he's going to escape but he's totally got he's there's more to him and blah blah blah." Uh, no, this is the episode about Locks on Troy. This episode actually has three separate plots to it, believe it or not. There's the on a Choi tr- plot, which is ugh, technically the main plot. I'll talk about that in a second. Then there's the Dixon Hill plot, which might as well not even be there. That's the B plot. And then there's the Assassin plot, which shows up for about 40 seconds at the end. At slight exaggeration. Um, uh, let's talk about Tracy Torme. This is basically the episode where Tracy Torme left the show. Now, I have spoken ill of Tracy Torme several times in the past, but I've also been willing to give him at least some small amounts of credit, uh, given some of the ideas he's had, some of the work he's done in the past, and how a lot of the crap that's come out with his name on it isn't quite his fault. Like the Royale is a good example of that. But this episode had a massive rewrite, which he was basically livid about. He actually says here, uh, if you'll give me just a moment, because this is actually relevant. Oh, by the way, I have the book here this time, so I can actually read to it from you. It's a giant thing, by the way. Twenty bucks. (sighs) So, he's writing about how the Dixon Hill stuff got rewritten. I'll talk about that in just a second. I turned green when I saw it. This is a direct quote. I turned green when I saw it. They got on this kick where Picard kept saying it was based on a book he just read. He kept saying, that didn't happen in the book I read. Uh, Not only was it like Battlestar Galactica, but it was like the Royale where they said everything was from a book. I was desperate. I went to Jean. It really got to me. The Royale I just shrugged off. But they were just mutilating Manhunt. And once again, I thought, with Jean stepping in, he could save it. Maybe with Gene stepping in, he could save it. But he was out of the picture, and everything would have to go through Maurice Hurley, uh, and he didn't want to hear it. The Dixon Hill stuff was a complete turkey, the choice stuff worked out okay, and I took my name off it because I didn't want people thinking I wrote that. Now, the reason I read that to you specifically was because that sounds like he went to Roddenberry, who basically said, nope. And at that point, the rewrites had already happened. But Roddenberry specifically pointed him to Hurley, And Maurice Hurley said nope, for whatever reason. I don't have any specifics, and I wasn't able to find any. But here's the problem with this. This episode was rewritten to include Loxana Troy. That's the main rewrite. Not the Dixon Hill stuff. The rewrite that shoved her into the picture and made her the main focus of the episode. So who did that? I don't know who did that. I did a little more research into this than I normally do, and I couldn't find anyone willing to talk about it or anyone who did talk about it or any interviews or any anything that indicated who actually did the rewrite to shove Lux on a Troy in charge. I do know that that was done before the encounter I just mentioned, because after the encounter I just mentioned... Uh, or, uh, sorry, sorry, because that was what caused the rewrites. And then, after the encounter I just mentioned, Maurice Hurley warned the director and the other people involved, hey, this is Major Barrett's episode, just run with it. Now, <laughs> there's also a line about, you know, she's the boss's wife, so you kind of have to a- acquiesce to that. But I'm not sure how much of that is legitimate and how much of that is just, you know, aggravation. We all say things we don't really mean when we're pissed off, right? That's a pretty normal thing. And as I've said before, I don't actually have a lot against Major Barrett. She's a pretty cool person. Never met her myself, but everything I've seen about her is fairly positive. Now, I hate Locks on a Troy most of the time, but that's because of how she's presented, it, it, which is funny, because one of the reasons uh, there was—I'm oh, trying to think how to phrase this—there was this slight restructuring involved, where okay, we have to have Major Barrett involved. Let's go do a specific callback because of Haven, right? This is one of the weird things that doesn't quite line up because... I shouldn't, shouldn't have closed the book. Hur- Hurley actually mentions how he was... Or not Hurley, excuse me. Um, Torme actually mentions how he was upset about Haven, which he felt was a bad episode. I agree. <laughs> I kind of shredded that episode remorselessly uh, when we got there back in season one. But his intention of trying to fix that implies that that was a part of the process to get her on early. And yet we also have statements from other people that we didn't know how to get the the Dixon Hill stuff fitted in, even though that was one of the original main plots of the episode, according to Torme. So this is another one of the circumstances, and I've mentioned this before, where we literally have conflicting information. And unfortunately, I just don't have a definitive answer to give you. I don't know what happened here. I don't know if this is originally a Dixon Hill episode, where Luxon was added in. I don't know if it was originally a Loxana episode where Dixon Hill was added in. I don't know if it was originally both somehow and the two plots just had nothing to do with each other. I got nothing. I was not able to definitively answer any of these questions. Which is why I did more of a research dive than I usually do. I also want to know who did those rewrites, right? And in what direction? Who was rewriting the Dixon Hill stuff? Was it Maurice Early? I mean, I don't know. Anyways... Now, I do want to say this episode came very close to being, at least give, getting like a positive for the fact that there was no threat of the week. Oh, excuse me. Tired lately. The idea that they, had, they went on board the holograph. This is one thing that, uh, I keep calling him Hurley, that Torme specifically wanted was he wanted a holodeck story where the holodeck did not malfunction, which is something that I agree with. The holodeck malfunction uh, is a little bit overused and a little bit overdone. Because, duh. And it it feels to me, if I might be so bold, that in TNG specifically, I love TNG, but one of the biggest problems they had is they seem to have this mentality that if we're going to use the holodeck at all, it has to malfunction. Now, I've actually already told you why that is. It's because we need a threat of the week. And a holodeck malfunction is a very simple, cheap, easy way to make a threat of the week. Otherwise, this is just going to be an episode about people hanging out on the holodeck. And it might be character-focused and character-centric and develop relationships and show new sides and backstories. And just, who the hell wants that? We need danger! Come on! Look, I'm sorry. I'm totally fine with there being danger and intrigue and action in Star Trek. I really am. I am also against the idea of a checklist which basically has to be checked in order for an episode to be made. That's my real irritation. And too many times the threat of the week, isn't—it it isn't a problem because it's a threat. It's a problem because it's mandatory for the construction of the episode. Even this episode has that problem. I'm going to skip ahead of my notes significantly because right at the end we have this big twist that the two aliens which we've been cutting to periodically are actually assassins. We're going to kill everyone with these bombs that are built into our cloaks or whatever. Everything is wrong with that scene. Everything is wrong with that scene they have this super explosive material which will kill lots of people at a large delegation which is specifically designed so the transporter can't detect them why can't anything else detect that loxana casually reveals the fact that they're assassins as if it was just an everyday thing why does she do this out in the open to people who are literally carrying bombs on them why do they not detonate the bombs as soon as they are ousted? Why does no one try to disable them immediately or stun them or something the moment the threat is revealed? Why is it that they decide to... Oh, this is irrelevant. No, oh, no. No, I'm not an assassin. The, the way they respond is so terrible. It's basically saying, yes, I'm guilty. It's, it's like watching Nathrazim from The Legion. Credit to some of you who get this reference. You know, oh, you have found me, out. <laughs> right? I mean... And... She's super, they're all super casual about this, and it's treated as if it's a threat, but it's not. And then she mentions, oh, well, I saved the conference. Why does she wait until this moment to say this? We know the range on their scanning, the the, the beta z scanning, is plenty. There's a scene earlier in this episode where Loxana proclaims, this is probably a lie, to be able to scan uh, Jean-Luc, that is to say Picard, from a shuttle, I'll get to that in a minute, We know Troy can detect people on a planet when she's in orbit. That's a hell of a distance, really. Why did she just now do this? That brings me to Max's question. Why did Troy not notice any of this? Yeah, I know she's not fully Betazoid, but so? You can't tell me that Troy, with her vaguely magical powers that the, the writers tend to misuse, couldn't detect anything from these people. And yeah, I know they didn't wake up till later. Clever way to hide the assassination thing. I'll give you that. But then they woke up. And of all the people who are checking up on these people, it's treated as an important thing. Worf is there. Uh, Pulaski is there. Data checks up on them one time. Uh, or no, wait, not Data, sorry. Uh, Wes, uh, did I say Wesley? Christ, I'm getting confused here. Wesley, Worf, and Pulaski are the three big ones who check up on them. Semi-regularly. I feel like someone else steps in on them as well. It might have been Riker, but it doesn't matter. Point being, in all of that, Troy never was like, alright, let's check up on them. Oh my god, they're hiding something! Right? Then, Loxana, having just casually brushed aside this as if it was nothing, hops onto the Transporter Bame and, and starts talking while she's being beamed away. Please explain to me how someone can talk in mid transport i'm i'm waiting <laughs> i'm waiting for that explanation i'm sure it's a doozy so <clears throat> <sighs> uh, so then we could back to the beginning of the episode now that i've got that out of my system like this is not a, what i would call a good episode i can't, it, i would actually call this a bad episode but it's hard to point to any one thing. It just feels like a lot of different things were shoved together with no coherence or purpose. There's no theme here. There's no character-centric stuff. All we learn is that Picard is a terrible role-player while simultaneously being pretty good at role-playing. Why is the Dixon Hill stuff even in this episode at this point? Yes, I know the out-of-character reason. I even know the in-character reason. But why go this route with it? He literally shows up and says, hey, I'm Dixon Hill. And then they have a few scenes of him complaining at the computer for his own fault. Actually, I have a couple notes about that. So at the 21 minute and 10 second mark, Dixon Hill enters the episode. And there's this bit where he walks in. And he's trying to remember her name. He's like, oh, that's right. What's her face? I don't remember her name. And she says, oh, you're acting like it's been a year. Well, no, that's a strangely specific statement. Several people, multiple people, said they wanted to do more Dixon Hill stuff after the big goodbye. It makes sense why. The holodeck, let's be honest with ourselves, is a great tool for a writer to tell additional types of stories, to vary up the usual. You don't have to have everything set on the Enterprise or in science fiction if you do that, and as I've pointed out before, it is cheaper to film on the pre-existing sets that they have at Paramount, or wherever they ch- choose to use, in order to do these things. So it is legitimately cheaper to do some, some of these holodeck episodes. Cool with it. Um, so they all wanted to do this, and they all referenced Big Goodbye. But I bring this up because the implication stated is that Picard has not been on here since the big goodbye. Which is about a year ago, in character. Picard has not been on the holodeck in a year. Keeping in mind, he enjoyed the experience. He called a staff meeting to gush about it. And he hasn't been on there in character in a year. Now, I know we haven't seen him go on, but that, that implication is almost absurd. We know Data's been on there, right? <sighs> so, I find myself wondering, why even include that? Like, it's a weird form of continuity that almost doesn't make sense. I get it, I get it. Picard's very busy. That's why right now, in the middle of a busy delegation transportation mission, he can go in the holodeck. Yeah, no, I'm not buying that one. In fact, earlier Picard was recusing himself from an exploratory mission to go get his heart worked on. Which is a whole other problem I talked about already. So then he goes on the holodeck, and someone tries to shoot him, and he says, Computer, freeze program. I have a very interesting question. What would have happened if he hadn't? I'm actually curious about that, because he even ducks behind the the desk. Now, do remember, this is functionally, I think, the fourth holodeck episode. It's still relatively early on. So we do know that the safeties are a thing, though. That was introduced in The Big Goodbye. That was part of the thing. And that makes sense. There's 99,000 reasons why you want safeties on something like a holodeck. There's just too many ways that can go badly from a design perspective. So, uh, from an engineering perspective, excuse me. So it makes perfect sense that there would be safeties involved and that Picard does not literally have to duck. Now, you could say maybe he's getting into the moment, which means he's a good role player, but... (laughs) It also makes me wonder why computer freeze program is the, pr- is the command to freeze program. I know that sounds like a weird thing to comment on, but computer freeze program is six syllables. And it can take someone a while to say, especially if they just have, have to say it in a hurry, for whatever reason. You'd think there'd be some kind of shorthand, right? I mean, we have that right now in computers. We literally have the ability to run a script, right? <laughs> We can run a batch file. You could think they could just set up a batch file that says, okay, I want to run this full-lengthy command if this much shorter command is stated. So you could just say, computer, freeze, right? Or hell, even just freeze if you want to. Or maybe you could make it like a code word, like banana pants or something. I don't know, something. <sighs> kumquat. There you go. Nobody says kumquat. In it. So just kumquat, and then it freezes. Why do they do that? I know, I know, I'm, I'm trying to get too believable with this. I apologize. The next thing I want to complain about, I'm sorry, this is just not a good episode, is that Picard... It's... It, okay, I do want to give credit, because they actually... I feel like they did this on purpose. At least the director and actors did, even though the script obviously did not. I like the fact that Picard, who is hiding from Majel Barrett's character, is talking to Majel Barrett's character while he's on there. Was a nice little touch you can kind of see the humor in it uh, as the way they present it there's actually a better one later but i'll get to that in a second so picard starts telling the computer no no less action more ambiance and then a guy comes is like i need you i need to hire you and he's like okay freeze remove all right all right <sighs> right okay let's try again a guy walks in with a tommy gun and then picard's acting all frustrated because he's like i just i came on here to relax I'm sorry. The reason I'm making fun, and I suppose this makes sense in character, but the reason I'm making fun is that Picard is effectively saying, Computer, surprise me. He has been giving incredibly vague instructions. I paid attention. Like, his specific wording, which I didn't write down, I should have, was just, hey, make something happen. Okay. And then he was upset that it wasn't what he wanted. Now, I suppose we've all done random start before, and then recycled it a few times. But usually we do that because, nah, because yeah, we understand what we're doing, that's the point of a random start. Picard, on the other hand, is like, this isn't what I wanted at all. What the hey? What the he? Double hockey sticks? Why not just tell the computer what you want? Oh, which brings me to my next point, by the way. Now, this next point is just a, a commentary, really. But he, uh, the computer says, this is, this program is limited by the confines of the books. Why? Now. The potential answer here is because the holodeck AI or whatever has not been developed enough, as it will be in the future. We know for total certainty that with the way the holodeck works later, and the holosuites over on DS9, that the ability to completely and fully 100% customize something on the holodeck is, is a viable thing, regardless of original parameters. Picard could say, all right, computer, I want you to have... A Klingon Brigade invade 4th Street right there. And then it would just... Right? We can explain this away in character. But I find myself wondering if at this point in time... The creators of the show hadn't thought of that yet. Because they treat it like you're on rails. And that's just not what the holodeck is. The holodeck is more or less the exact opposite of being on rails. You know? I mean, sure, there are hollow novels—a concept that we've introduced much later in the franchise's history—which are a deliberately intended on-rails adventure. But for the most part, the holodeck is designed to be the playground, the the, the sandbox adventure. And, and forgive me for speaking passionately about this a little bit because I happen to be a little bit into video games since I was three. But the idea here is that. <laughs> You have this option to play how you want. Customize it. Set it up. I just wanted to look at Picard. I, I wish I could just show it up to Picard right there and be like, Dude, just tell the computer what you want. I didn't. No, you didn't. Be specific. Like, <laughs> it's not like Picard doesn't know how to be specific to the holodeck. He did that in... Um, we'll always have Paris. I want this exact cafe at this time of day and this year blah 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 blah. they just went down the list with all these specifics funnily enough even when he was setting up this program he had to specifically uh mention that he wanted the the year to be set ad and i found myself wondering as he was saying that what would happen if this was bc <laughs> well, well, well. so here's new york or whatever it is san francisco i don't remember the city except in you know the 1400s bc the 1800s B.C. 1900s B.C., sorry. No, I guess that would be the 2000s. Whatever, you get the point. 1940-ish B.C. <laughs> what the hell? Anyways, anyways. It was, it, I actually don't remember the year off the top of my head. I feel so stupid because they actually mention the Battle of Britain starting in this episode. So I should know the year, but I don't. <sighs> Why does he insist on breaking characters so often? Picard. Like, I don't get that. It's not like... How do I phrase this? If I was on the holodeck, and I would like to know, because I imagine some of you have the same idea here. If we were on the holodeck, I th- I like to imagine that in some cases, we would deliberately break character, right? Just for fun. You know, just Just to try it out. Just to see what happens. Like... I actually don't think I can use any example that breaks my own spoilers policy. So let's use a meta example let's say that we're playing an episode uh playing this episode of star trek in the holodeck okay and we're playing picard right so we're like ah they're beamed aboard uh worf check them out for explosives and uh send them over to this area and make sure they don't come out of their coma until they've been completely disarmed and then put them in the brig what you know like they they <laughs> I know that's a bad example because I'm just using this episode, but you get the idea, right? I'm sure you can think of plenty of games where it'd be interesting to just say, "Oh, you know, I know how this game ends. I know all the twists. I know all the reveals. So I'm just going to walk in knowing all that and completely break character on purpose because, ah, just for fun." But that's not what Picard does. Instead. He casually, as if he's normally having a regular conversation with a person, says, Oh, well, actually, World War II, and he keeps saying this in the past sense, World War II ended with the United States being super strong, and blah, blah, blah. And why does he do this? He knows he's on a holodeck. He knows how holodecks work. He has the ability to stay in character. He's done that before in this episode. He does it later. When Riker shows up, he says, No, no, call me dicks. Uh, Okay. And then he makes up fake names for 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 Data and Riker. Because he's in character. Why does he just so casually break character there? And it's not even like that's a slip of the tongue because he first steps in. Which is at least partially explainable. You know, the idea of, oh, I'm not used to this being a holodeck. It looks so real. Except he's been on the holodeck before. I don't know. It just kind of bugged me. (sighs) Um, I have a note here that says Data looks great in a suit. And I stand by that statement. Um, While we're talking about the holodeck, we'll talk about Loxana in a minute. Ironically, I have the least to say about her. The main plot of the episode. What happens when you smoke a cigarette on the holodeck? Now, in The Big Goodbye, Picard tried to and started coughing. You remember that? That, to me, implies that the cigarette was doing what it should, which... If we're to continue with the theory, which is not fully codified in lore, but, you know, the headcanon, that the holodeck replicates and produces holograms, that means the holodeck replicated an actual cigarette for Picard to smoke. There's also a smoky atmosphere in the room and all the shots of it, I noticed. It's, It's very obvious, especially when the camera's panning over the windows where you can see the light coming in and just visible in the air. Is the holodeck actually replicating all that stuff? I mean... I know this sounds like a weird thing to bring up, but the designer in me, the, the 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 engineer in me, I guess is the way to put that, looks at that and wonders how do you specify those parameters? The ideal, of course, would be to set up specific flags that the user can change. I want you know certain substances to be replicated and certain to be rep- and certain to be not you know just just a holographic thing. But I mention that because Picard takes a cigarette, smokes it, and has no issue with it in this episode. Now, I have, this is just a nitpick, obviously. This is, this is a mistake. Let's just be honest about that. But from an in-character perspective, I wonder, with all of the, the, the knowledge of the holodeck that has been gained over the past year, maybe they started setting up specific parameters to simulate rather than directly replicate certain things. Which brings me to another question. Alcohol. Now, we know they can just produce alcohol. But how do we define that on the holodeck? They're going to a bar... Right? They're going there to get alcoholic stuff. Is that synthahol? Is that alcohol? Is it water? I mean, you see the level of complexity that comes into some of the design questions here. And the reason I bring this up is because there has to be a default. Picard, as I mentioned earlier, gave very few specifics about what he wanted. Way too few, if I might be so bold. How many of you have started up a new game... Uh, so RPGs are pretty big on this, but a lot of video games do this. And when you're starting up a new game, there is just a, a bevy of options you have to set to customize your gaming experience. Um, XCOM is actually a pretty good example of the reason XCOM or XCOM 2. Do you want this kind of mode? Do you want this kind of stuff to happen? Do you want the flag to be saved to prevent reloads? Or do you want the flag to be randomized so that reloads change the answer? All this sort of stuff, right? Um, Dishonored Two. Do you want the AI to be, you know, very detective but also very slow, or great in combat but terrible at detecting? And there's like forty freaking op- that might be exaggerated, There's twenty freaking options that you have to s- that you have the availability to set before you start your game. Now this isn't a complaint. Quite the contrary, I love those kind of things. But what happens if you just say start new game? There has to be a default setup. So whose job is it to set up the default for things like smoking and alcohol? Or, you know, what do you do with the gun, right? Because I think, here's the problem with the gun problem. What do you use to define what is replicated and what is holodecked? It's not a great term, but hear me out. You know, what is a physical object that has been crafted by the holodeck, and what is a holographic recreation? Because... Assuming this headcanon is true, and I do think we have a decent enough evidence to say that this is at least partially true on certain episodes of Star Trek, because Lord knows our Star Trek is incredibly inconsistent with itself. If this is true, what do you use to define which is which? Let me use an example. Uh, there's Picard and Riker, and then Bob rushes and he's like, ha, ha ha It was me all along! <laughs> he turns into team and he pulls out a gun and he shoots at Picard. Now what happens? obviously, the safeties are on. They can be disabled, but let's assume the safeties are on. So what happens is, most likely, this is a holographic recreation, which is shooting a holographic... In fact, there's probably no actual bullet coming out at all. There's no need for that based on the confines of the program, right? Thinking like a developer, thinking like a programmer here for a second. So there's probably no actual bullet that's produced, just the effect of, of the sound and the smoke. And the sound is probably a fake sound. Right? That makes sense, because anybody who's shot a gun in real life knows those are loud! <laughs> like, fiction really downplays this fact for obvious reasons, but again, I'm sure plenty of you have shot guns in real life or heard guns in real life. They are really, really loud. You shoot a gun right here, you'll probably have a trouble hearing for a while. So, fake sound and no bullet. All of this makes sense. What happens then if Picard grabs the gun from him? Well, okay, it's still a holographic thing. There's still a force field there presenting it. So he has effectively grabbed a holographic representation. He can then point it at Bob, shoot. There's probably a little bit of kickback built into it. There might not be, but that's the kind of thing that has to be defined. And then, of course, no bullet is defined. However, the computer can tell where you're aiming with this object and basically do a hit scan and have the guy go, Ugh, and basically be fake shot. How do you simulate someone being shot, then? You can see how many different variables there are to this. What if he turns and fires at Riker? Well, theoretically, nothing would happen, right? Let's do the whole scenario except with the safeties off. With the safeties off, does that mean an entirely separate subset of variables are loaded? Because the entire idea of the safeties off is that that is damaging. But what if the default is for it to be a holographic gun that doesn't shoot anything? So even with the safeties off, hypothetically, he would shoot and nothing would happen. However, as we saw in the big goodbye, someone was shot and actually was physically shot with a bullet that actually injured them, which implies that that was replicated once the safeties went off. Who defines where this works and why, and how many things are produced in what way? There's so many different possibilities. And forgive me for going on and on about this fact, but I personally find the holodeck a fascinating piece of technology. It's one of the more interesting things that I have seen in science fiction, in my blunt opinion. And there's a lot of possibility there. Speaking as a GM, uh, it also is basically the ultimate tool for running a pen and paper game. It wouldn't even be pen and paper at that point. Um, anybody who reads uh, Table Titans, which is done by Scott Kurtz and a couple of other people's names I don't remember, forgive me. Um, there's actually several panels they do where the GM, like, it's it's an art, you know, it's a comic, right? So, it's a webcomic. So, you know, the, the shot, what you're seeing is what's happening in character, not the people around the table. But then the GM is just kind of walking through the stuff, talking about stuff, and interacting with the characters as they're talking to him. To me, that sounds awesome, the kind of thing you could do on a holodeck, right? Imagine I'm literally there on the holodeck with you, and you guys are playing through the game that I'm developing, and I'm like, okay, well, this happens here, and this happens here, blah, 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 right? There's so much possibility there. It's just defining the specifics of making it believable, making it work. That's what really fascinates me and leads to so many problems when it comes to Star Trek because for the most part, in my experience, Star Trek treats the holodeck as if it is magic, just bluntly magic. It is a perfect simulation, somehow, except when it isn't. Anyways, I don't have much else to say about the Dixon Hill section, because there's nothing to say there. Loxana falls for a hologram. <laughs> uh, I'll get to that in a minute. Let's talk about Loxana. I don't want to. <sighs> Let me explain why Loxana rubs me the wrong way. Because there's a specific reason, and it's not Major Barrett. Funnily enough, even in this episode, she drops the facade for a few scenes and acts like a real character. And it it was actually kind of nice to see her not have the mask up. But the mask that Loxana carries around on her, we see this in DS9 as well, actually in an episode we've already covered, is one of someone who is rude. You could ascribe other attributes to her, but the rude part is all that really matters to me, because I can't stand rudeness. In fact, I hate rudeness. I am the kind of person who will be more positively inclined to someone who is evil but polite than someone who is rude and neutral. Rude and good, fine, whatever. But still, you're being rude. Why are you being rude? It drives me crazy. So, she is just very rude. And I think everything I dislike about her can be explained by one very specific scene. She is on an open channel talking to him on his bridge with another ensign that she's basically shoving out of the way so she can talk, which is already rude, and she flat out says, oh my god, you think such horrible thoughts about me. Now, we know she's lying. We could say with extremely high certainty that she is lying with those little jabs. It's just become her own little joke with Picard. Fine. But the way she does that right at the beginning is just rude. And if she knew anything about Picard, she would understand how How embarrassing, humiliating, and emasculating that is to Picard. This is someone who was upset about the idea that people would learn that he was getting surgery. Remember that? Back in uh, Samaritan Snare? The idea of someone just walking up and being like, Picard, hey, in front of his crew, on his bridge? Oh, and of course, it's a lie. Which just makes it worse. I know that sounds weird. If it was true, at least there would be some kind of, yes, fine, whatever. But it wasn't true. She was trying to humiliate and embarrass him with a lie, which just makes all of her intentions wrong, to put that as bluntly as I can. Now, I actually skipped over something. Forgive me. The episode actually begins with Picard, who uh, comes down and says, ah, welcome to the Enterprise. And then there's this moment of awkward silence. Why is that there? See, the thing is, the aliens don't respond, and then, you know, Pulaski goes up to check them, and Wes is like, what's going on? And then Picard, the guy who just said, welcome to the Enterprise, explains that they're in a frickin' coma. An artificially induced coma so that they can, it's a form of stasis so they can endure space travel. Pause for a second. That's a kind of a cool idea. It's kind of an extension of the pre-existing real-life idea that would have to go into you know, habitat, habitat pods or stasis or whatever for space travel because of how long it would take. The idea that space travel is horrifying is actually kind of a neat thing, especially in Star Trek, where space travel is everyday and mundane. The idea of seeing that kind of concept is a neat idea, and I wish they did something more with it, but realistically speaking, they didn't. Back to the episode. Now, I bring this up because that line is completely inconsequential and irrelevant. Picard's line just makes him look like a goofus. What should have happened, because I always like to critique and give alternate possibilities, what should have happened is instead Picard should have been like, um, just said nothing. Just stood there in formal dress because it's the proper thing to do with it so far. And then Pulaski goes up and checks on them and Wes is like, aren't we going to greet them, Captain? Picard's like, no, of course, and then explains everything to Wes. That way Wesley... <laughs> who admittedly probably should know about this given previous episodes, but whatever. Wesley, at least, still is the person who does not know what's going on. Picard comes across as fully the person who is you know, fully briefed on the situation, which is good. And the entire scene just sort of clicks a little bit better, rather than being weird. Back to where we were with Loxana. So then Loxana beams aboard, kneeling. Now we know Loxana does not like God it's weird I'm sorry if I start screwing up my pronunciation it's because saying loxana over and over just kind of gets well, after a while <sighs> my mouth just kind of goes Loxana has a noted disp- disposition against transporters which goes away at the end of the episode but whatever so that's understandable if she really is a ambassador, on behalf of the Federation, who has full rights and all that, why not just have her come aboard on the shuttle that she was already in? They don't actually call it a shuttle. They say it's a small transport craft, but I'm pretty sure, based on the shots and based on what they're talking about, that it's a frickin' shuttle. Why not just have her come aboard? Right? But no, we have to have her beam aboard so she can be like, legs, legs, where's the legs? Now, I'm just gonna say this because I'm calling that scene out because I think that was a writing issue. However, this is one of the rare writing issues of this episode that could be explained in character perfectly logically. One of the things that is very predominant about Loxana's persona, not her personality, not her real self, but the mask she carries around, is that she likes to make a scene. She wants people to notice her, whether it's good or bad, and she wants to provoke people. She herself flat-out states, I like doing the unexpected, even when it's rude. So in character, it makes perfect sense that Loxana would say, you know, I could go over, but be me aboard. Oh, and I'm going to kneel when I do it. That, she, and she doesn't say this, but this is what she's thinking. I'm going to kneel when, when she does this, so I can make a big scene about, oh my gosh, my legs, and get everyone's attention on me, just like I like. Because that makes sense, for the way she's presented. Not really a uh, positive thing, but there you go. <sighs> so... <laughs> They once again call back. You can see some of that Maurice Hurley continuity coming in here about oh no Riker's like here allow me to carry your thing and he, just, he has to lift it with both arms. Good God, why does she carry around so much stuff? Um, Mr. Home, I just want to give pre- credit again. Home is awesome as always. Probably my favorite bit of his. He, he does a lot of good, you know, non-vocal acting, and I do. He absolutely deserves praise for it. But um, my favorite bit is when they go to check on Worf and Wesley. Which is in a weird scene because Loxana's like, oh, you would be amazing. Worf, oh, you're, you're, oh, you would be fantastic. But no, I see humans and Worf. Worf just looks weird about that whole scene. Like, I can't tell. It, it feels like the director didn't tell Michael Dorn how to act, so he just kind of winged it. Like, should I, should I be embarrassed? Should I be flattered? I don't know how to react to this one. But then getting back to Home, she goes, okay, who's next? And Mr. Holm goes, I'll take my glasses off for this. She goes, she's like, oh, of course! That was a great little bit. I almost wonder if that was ad-libbed. Anyways. <clears throat> so. I'm sorry. Why did... So Loxana is going through menopause, basically. Although that's not really how they, that works, but whatever. Her sex drive is cranked up to 11. What they never explain is if this happens more than once to... Betazoid women. I mention that because Loxana is not that young. There's no offense here. She's not that young. She's already been married, and she's already had two children. So, um, (laughs) did she just do all of that before her sex drive was cranked up? Like, I'm legitimately curious. I mention this because I had the automatic assumption that it was a cyclical thing. It just happens every now and again. And... Instead, I as I was going through, they never mentioned that. It was just it happens. Okay. I do like the little touch that Riker and Troy are the one to inform Picard about this, because that makes sense. Both of them would be fully aware of that aspect of their physiology. <clears throat> That's the most neutral statement I've ever said for two people we're dating. But anyways, um, <laughs> then uh, so she's so Troy waits way too long to tell anybody about this. Now, you could argue that this is a private matter, but Loxana has more or less deliberately made it not a private matter. And this also brings us to an issue that this can't be explained in character, I don't think. If you can, please, by all means, I'd love to hear your thoughts. But there's an issue of construction of sequences. And you could just feel where the different drafts of the script just kind of collide with each other here. Because what happens is Loxana says, I'll be having, and I wrote it down, a Betazoid dinner... Of, uh, of greeting an ambassadorial function. God, I can't even read my own handwriting, and actually I don't think that says greeting. Whatever, an ambas- a, a betazoid dinner of blank ambassadorial function. Okay, I'm with it. She says that to Picard in full view of several other officers, including, and this is the really important one, Troy. Why doesn't Troy immediately tell Picard about this? Later. In the episode, Picard, who is dressed up, says, oh, of course, I, I need to get on the way for dinner. And what happens is one of the most badly constructed sequences of events I've seen in Star Trek, where, where Riker's like, dinner? And then Picard leaves without actually responding to the clear question his first officer just said. And then Riker just sit looks around and says, what dinner is he talking about? And at no point in time does it occur to him to ask. It would take literally seconds to go, Picard, I'm sorry, what dinner? You know? But nobody bothers to do that. It's a sitcom. And I'm sorry to say that because Lord knows sitcoms can be good. But it feels sitcomy, you know what I mean? It feels like, oh, we need to have the three company three's company sequence of events to be nice and embarrassing, so Picard shows up, where no one's there, I wasn't a fool. And then this is where things really get messed up. Later on, Troy is talking to Pulaski. And mentions the sex drive thing to her. And Pulaski says, oh, interesting. I just saw Picard going to dinner by himself. And Troy's like, oh, no. And that's when it clicks for her. Even though she knew all of this already. (laughs) Also, Troy should have probably sensed this. I mean, I'm sorry, Troy's Troy's empathic abilities just seem to be turned off for the entire episode. I don't know what's going on with that. So... Then there's a scene where they have... Su- I actually kind of skipped pathos It's the scene where the th- threes Company thing just happened. There's a scene where characters sound like they're not themselves. And I bring that up because I've noticed that's kind of a hallmark of Torme's writing. I've mentioned this several times before. And this I think I can actually put on Torme. It's probably the only complaint of this episode I can put on his shoulders. Because there's this scene where they're just busybodying on the bridge wesley riker and data are busybody rumor milling on the bridge about ooh hoo and <laughs> i i'm sorry i know that's a little thing but something about that scene just took me completely out of the moment <sighs> and they had this super incredibly fake laughter um then Picard goes to the meal. Now, I want to give credit to the props, I suppose, people, because they changed out the bell. The bell that they used in the previous episode, which is Haven, was obnoxious and annoying, and they used it way too often. Now, I get that that was kind of the point, but as I've said many, many times, just because you are deliberately annoying does not make you not annoying. <laughs> I know um and you have to do something as a as a creator as a, as a creator as a writer to to even that out because remember you're still presenting a work of entertainment to an audience right they do a better job of it here and that's kind of why i wanted to praise that they don't use it as often and it's a completely different tone which is far less abrasive and far quieter in fact i wouldn't even be surprised if it basically said nothing and they added the sound effect after the fact because that's kind of what it sounded like um and that's a good move that's a legitimately good idea, and a good way to still have the blong, while at the same time not irritating your audience with it. Now, I've been kind of tearing this episode to shreds, but I want to give huge praise to Major Barrett and Patrick Stewart. No, really. The scene where the two of them are having dinner, and then Data joins in, is actually great. Um, it's not the best Star Trek I've ever seen, of course, but it was just a breath of fresh air amongst most of the rest of the episode. Patrick Stewart is a wonderful, subtle actor, the kind of person who can do very minor changes and differences in his posture and the way his face is being held that convey a lot of emotion. He's a great actor. And Majel Barrett is no slouch herself. She has this whole presentation. It's hard to properly explain, but if you watch the sequence of events, you know what I'm talking about, where you know she comes in and she's trying to be seductive and sultry, right? But she notices almost immediately that that isn't working. So then she switches tactics completely, starts sitting far more conservatively, and starts talking her way through him, trying to intellectualize her way to what she wants out of the arrangement. And then when Picard brings in Data, she just deflates. Now, she doesn't actually get to the point of losing her composure, and that's the nice subtle bit there. She says several things that are far more blunt, and you can feel the mask slipping off her several times there. But that is credit to Majel Barrett that she can act both with the mask with the mask off and with the mask slipping. That's why I wanted to praise the acting of, that, of those scenes. And, of course, Data coming in was awesome. Did you know that and all this, this, and blah, 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 blah. And there's this final great bit, which I wanted to praise, where they're walking out and Picard just kind of stops for a moment. And then you just see his entire body language just... uh, uh, I owe you greatly, (laughs) Data. That was awesome. Final couple of steps I just want to mention. So we know that Loxana is really, really loopy in this episode. In fact, we know for a certainty that her empathic abilities basically aren't working right now. This would explain several things, like why she doesn't talk to Troy in her head in several scenes where they should have. It explains why she isn't able to tell Rex is a hologram, etc. But I wonder how much this is affecting her in general, because she just walks up to the bridge, sits there for a moment, and says, all right, we're getting married to Riker. To our ship. She actually says it that way. Very presumptive. But what really weirds me out is she spends several scenes asking people where Picard is. But she never asks the computer. Now, this is weird for two reasons. First of all, this is weird because as we've seen, most notably in the Neutral Zone, the computer will tell anyone anything because there's no security features on it, which is stupid. And I'm just going to say that as bluntly as I can. That is just a stupid design flaw. So, So there's no reason why she couldn't have just said, Computer, locate Picard. Ah, there he is. The second reason it's stupid is because she does that. She actually locates them on the holodeck later on in the episode. (laughs) That brings me to another point. And I hate to complain about one last thing here, but Picard is there, and he's like, oh, we need to get going. Oh, surely you have enough time for one round? Okay, one round. Then we cut to Loxana. Then she finds them. Then she goes to the holodeck. And that's got to be several minutes of time. Why are they delaying? Keeping in mind, they're here on actual ambassadorial function, and based on the way this is presented, they need to go change. As in, they brought the clothing they're wearing onto the holodeck, which means they need to go physically change. So why are they just kind of sitting around so that Luxonic and got on the holodeck, which is, I just answered my own question. Quick point, though. So she never asked for Picard. And then she goes on and she's like, oh, Rex is fascinating. I'm sorry to bring this up, but why doesn't she tell that Rex is a hologram? Now I know her empathic abilities just aren't working properly, but the only way I can believe this is if either A, her empathic abilities aren't working at all, which or B, her ability to think has completely gone out the window. Now this is possible, but it just feels weirdly constructed because there are uh, two people because I, I can't I was going about to say theory, but data doesn't count there are two people present. Whom, even though they are not holograms, she should, if her powers are working at all, be able to detect and say, "Oh, yeah, he's a hologram." In fact, given that Picard tried to tell her that, obviously, that's that's a, to use the Babylon Five term, that's at the surface level, right? Like, I always I, I like to think of thoughts in the same way that Babylon Five showcases it. You know, there's surface thoughts, which uh, there's active thoughts, and then there's like subsurface thoughts, and then there's you know, just go down the layers, right? So, Picard was having an active thought at the surface level of saying, hey, that's a hologram. But she couldn't even detect that, which is just weird in its own right. It's a weird thing to point out. I just wanted to point it out because it's just strange, but whatever. Oh yeah, Loxana is wildly sexist in this episode. I'm just going to... I wanted to save that for last. I don't know if that's part of her character or if that's part of her being loopy right now. Make of that what you will. She actually flat out says at one point that men are a commodity. <laughs> I didn't care for this episode. I'm sorry that I've ranted about it so long. I don't even know which episode's next. I, I, like I said, I spent a, longer on this episode uh, in the pre-recording phase than I normally do because I was trying to figure out what the hell was going on with the script. I do want to say one final thought about Tracy Tourmay. I have obviously flung a lot of crap at him for the episodes he's done on TNG, but I've done a little bit more digging into Torme's work in general, and it feels a little bit more like the man is great at coming up with interesting and unique ideas and not so great at actually implementing them. Torme feels to me like the kind of person who should write in a team, and that's, there's no insult there. You know, obviously, we all... It's weird that I have to say that, but you know, there's nothing wrong with being skilled at one thing and not being skilled at another. And I would have liked to see more of his work on Star Trek. Especially in Season 7 when they ran out of ideas. No, seriously. I think someone like Torme, who could just shoot out concepts and ideas that other people could take and work with, would have been something that would have helped inject some very serious life into TNG Season 7. And those of you who have seen TNG 7 know why I say that. I hope you all have enjoyed my discussions on this, and I'll be seeing you guys next week.